1684, the French explorer and fur trader René Robert Cavelier, also known as Sir de La Salle, initiated an expedition to Texas, founding the colony of Fort St. Louis in present-day Victoria County. By the winter of 1687, following a massacre by the Kurenkawa, the ever-dwindling number of settlers planned to walk to Quebec, then return by ship to France. But La Salle never made it out of Texas. The explorer was murdered by his men when they mutinied near Huntsville. And while La Salle may have been out of the picture, diaries from the time show his nephew was not inclined to forgive and forget, no matter how wildly unfocused his quest for revenge may have been. This particular 17-year-old was uh, uh, very uh, anxious to get retribution for the death of his uncle. And at one time or another, they had to pull his character off of everybody in the expedition, according to the priest's account. That's Dr. Harold Gill King, a noted forensic anthropologist who founded UNT's Laboratory of Forensic Anthropology in 1986. He was drawn into LaSalle's story in 1988, when Dr. Kathleen Gilmore, an archaeologist with UNT's Institute of Applied Science, brought him photographs of skulls that had been excavated from a grave near Caddo Village in Bowie County, Texas, in the early 1930s. And she said, look, you know, I want to know, uh, are these skulls uh, Native Americans or are they Europeans? And I said, are you kidding me? It doesn't work that way. Where's the skull? Let's have the skull, you know, come on. And she said, well, see, that's the problem. Nobody's seen the skull since 1960. But thanks to some careful measurements they took from the photographs, along with additional measurements that had been taken in 1934 when the remains were sent to the Smithsonian, the duo determined the skull was European. The historic record of the expedition revealed that shortly after LaSalle's death, as the group continued on toward Canada, his nephew reported seeing a man known as Sir de Marle drown while bathing in the river. Diary accounts from the time noted that LaSalle's nephew carried a brace of pistols and was present at the scene when de Marle's body was discovered. And while de Marle allegedly drowned, he had bullet wounds to his torso. Everybody seemed to have overlooked the presence of two pistol balls. Well, the, the Caddo Indians didn't have any pistols. Therefore, implicitly, some other European shot it. You know, well, this case went on for about 15 years. New techniques, new ideas, uh, new methods. And it was confirmed uh, by uh, uh, one of my DNA colleagues just recently, uh, who's up at the University of Connecticut. Uh, that the uh, DNA population typing on this individual is indeed uh, European and most closely fits the haplotypes of people in, uh, in France. So we know who this guy is, and we have a lot of diary accounts that suggest uh, that the nephew of LaSalle was present at the time the guy died. And so we have this young man who has means, motive, and opportunity, and he is at the scene of the crime in 11 different diary accounts. And I'm pretty sure I could make a good wrongful death case against LaSalle's nephew for murdering another member of the party. 
That kind of dogged determination to reveal truth through science is exactly what Dr. Gil King does in his role as a forensic anthropologist. It's a role that's changed significantly since archaeological excavations like that of Caddo Village, when forensic anthropologists were mainly known for writing dissertations on the bones uncovered at such digs. In the years that followed, the field evolved into something more akin to hard tissue pathology or bone biology, with more of a detailed emphasis at the tissue or molecular level. Now, forensic anthropologists have skill sets ranging from statistics to microbiology to radiology that allow them to look more deeply into the process. UNT's Laboratory of Forensic Anthropology, for example, is responsible for analyzing skeletal remains for forensic significance, biological profiles, positive identifications, and trauma analysis. As director of the lab, Dr. Gil King has a sterling reputation in this ever-changing field, although he'd be the last to say so. His peers, however, were all too happy to say exactly that when they nominated him this year for the American Academy of Forensic Sciences T. Dow Stewart Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Field, which, by the way, he won. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Aaron Christalis, for a look at Dr. Gil King's impressive career, including his most memorable cases, his approach to balancing the clinical and emotional aspects of his work, and his views on the importance of science in a world that needs it now more than ever. As someone who's managed to become so well-respected in his field, whose work has included responding to the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks and the Oklahoma City bombing, you'd think Gil King would have always dreamed of becoming a forensic anthropologist. But the SMU alumnus originally trained to be a comparative primate biochemist. His intention was to become a primatologist, even completing a postdoc at a federal primate reserve in Louisiana in 1975. But once back in Dallas, job prospects did not look great. And alas, primates still pretty thin on the ground, no jobs. So the refuge of a jobless postdoc is take another postdoc. And this time I was fortunate to uh, secure a postdoc in hard tissue pathology with uh, Charles Petty at the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences. For those unfamiliar with Petty, he was a legend himself, having opened the first medical examiner's office in Dallas in 1969. The city recruited him after suffering the embarrassment of having no qualified medical examiners within the city limits who could perform President John F. Kennedy's autopsy following his 1963 assassination. Dr. Gil King completed his pathology postdoc under Petty in 1976, and then, in 1984, the Dallas Medical Examiner's Office found themselves without a forensic anthropologist. 
they remembered vaguely some bonehead uh, who had been around there and they said, go find that guy. So I began doing casework uh, for that office. Now, now, mind you, I have no formal training in forensic anthropology. Uh, so I, I began to do casework for them, which meant that I had to study uh, and think and act and behave and adopt the language of forensic anthropology and uh, uh, move in that direction. And so you study and read and think and behave in a certain direction and suddenly you you wake up and you're there. Then of course, the formal aspects of this, um, which require board examinations and, and uh, peer review and that sort of thing so that you you're not someone who just wakes up one day after watching Bones and say, boy, you know, I, I have a degree in anthropology. I think I'll be one of those, you know? In his role, he was mentored by Petty, an experience to which he credits much of his past and future success. In the beginning, when people, you know, would say, well, well who's this guy? <laughs> you know, and someone would say, Dr. Petty's name, doors would open. He was that large a figure. I can remember many evenings, both of us sitting on the floor in his office where he maintained his own personal library, um, which he referred to as his silent consultants, going through things page after page, trying to find something out uh, together. And those were some of the most pleasurable uh, moments in my life. Petty told him you have to have three things to be a good forensic anthropologist, two of which are learnable. The first is powers of observation, breaking things down and looking for anything that's out of place. The second is inductive and deductive reasoning. The third thing can't be taught, Petty told him. You have to have a junkyard mind. Meaning you've got to have a mind just totally full of stuff. Um, you know, uh, uh, what is a parsec? <laughs> uh, how long does it take a 10 penny nail to rust under certain conditions? Uh, all kinds of things. And he said, that's the key ingredient. You can learn powers of observation. You can learn induction, deduction. But there is absolutely no substitute for very broad inquiry. And so I think the best gift uh, that he gave me or the gift that he encouraged me to develop was uh, the path to a junkyard mind. You know, and uh, it's, um, if you ever try to look something up in a dictionary and you couldn't get there because there were so many interesting words along the way, you know, you had to stop and check those out. That's what it's like. It's like going half the distance to the goal each time, you know, theoretically you never get there. A few years later, Dr. Gil King arrived at UNT as a visiting professor and was invited by the dean to stay on. He was equipped with a small room, an x-ray machine, and other various items. And that's when he decided to establish what was then the one-man laboratory of forensic anthropology and which now has four forensic anthropologists on staff. 
In the early 1990s, Dr. Gil King and Dr. Arthur Eisenberg, a DNA specialist from the UNT Health Science Center, collaborated to start the Center for Human Identification. The Center's DNA and Anthropology units handle casework from all across the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Texas law requires that any time unknown human remains are found in the state, medical and legal authorities must submit a DNA sample to the center. And many of the center's cases do exclusively involve DNA. But when deeper answers of identity are needed, it's the forensic anthropology lab's job to find them. Usually, if you have significant remains associated, uh, then the anthropology unit gets involved because even if you have an identification through DNA, what you have is an identification. Now the question remains, what happened to that person? Why did it happen? When did it happen? And then that falls into anthropology. So there's a kind of a back and forth in these cases between those two elements. In his role, Dr. Gilking has often viewed what he calls the inside of history. In addition to the LaSalle case, the World Trade Center attacks, and the Oklahoma City bombing, he's dealt with space shuttle explosions and large-scale natural disasters. He was appointed a deputy medical examiner in El Paso County in 2002, where he assisted the Mexican Judicial Federal Police in the recovery and identification of victims in the Maquiladora serial homicides in Chihuahua, Mexico from 1996 to 2008. And a large part of the Forensic Anthropology Lab's work involves identifying skeletons of undocumented persons who died on the Texas border. Those emotional cases, he says, are the ones that stay most visible in his mind. When I was young and starting off in this business and my children were small, I found child cases particularly difficult uh, for obvious reasons, because you're up here late at night in the lab uh, working on what appears to be a nine or 10 year old female child is beginning to emerge on your table. And it's impossible not to think about your own nine or 10 year old female child, 44 miles to the south, safe and warm in her bed where her parents carefully guard her comings and goings and then reflect upon the path, the world line, that caused this child to appear on my table. Those kinds of things uh, evoke very strong emotional responses. And they still do. But we're all human, he says. We see things and we feel things. But science can almost serve as a lifeboat, a way of not drowning in sorrow. The truth is that when you're doing a case, when you're involved in an examination like that, the technical difficulty, the, the great difficulty of seeing what you need to see, not missing anything, um, is a kind of uh, uh, muting force. It, it immunizes you against the terribleness, the awfulness of what is before you. So it's only afterward, when you reflect on these things, maybe in a moment of relaxation, when your objectivity is down, that these things kind of creep up on you. Um, 
I learned a very important lesson from a friend of mine who's a homicide cop, old crusty homicide cop. He was uh, at a crime scene that was particularly awful. Uh, a couple dead kids, a dead parent, a uh, very messed up scene. And he said all he could think about was looking at his watch and saying to himself, if I don't make it to my dinner date with my wife, uh, you know, this is really going to be bad. He realized later that he was in the middle of this awful scene and all he could think about was being late to dinner and he realized that he was losing a very important part of himself. In other words, you don't ever want to get to the point where this kind of thing does not register with you emotionally. You don't want to lose that part of yourself. And so, um, you know, from time to time, I take some comfort in the fact that these things still break me down a bit. And it helps, he says, if at the end of the day you have a hobby or some other form of beauty to escape to. People that do what I do have some very interesting hobbies. I do a lot of stone masonry. I like to create large objects out of stone. Um, uh, and um, so it's just part of a creative thing that happens. One way to look at it is, is uh, that by as much as the things you do in the course of the day are dire, um, somewhat saddening, um, uh, basically steady ration of man's humanity to man, you know, which is a growth industry, by the way. Um, there has to be some way in there that you can take yourself in another direction. Uh, you're familiar with the rock musician, Steve Miller? Yes. Steve Miller's dad was a pathologist and he made the most beautiful jewelry out of gallstones. George, used to make some unbelievable stuff out of people's gallstones. Now, I know another one who, uh, whose hobby is collecting and uh, restoring pipe organs. You know, uh, I know another guy, um, uh, the late medical examiner of uh, Miami-Dade County, Joe Davis, who collected exotic poisonous plants. He had over 200 fatal species in his backyard. And the joke used to be, gonna go to Joe's house, you know, for heaven's sake, you know, wash your hands. If you go out in the backyard, don't put them in your mouth, you know, be the end of you. I mean, but, but what I think it is that drives this is that, you know, I've often wondered um, what it would be like to earn a living or have a reputation or to be known for a beautiful symphony or for incredible paintings that evoked deep happiness and emotion or um, to just play gigs, you know, in smoky bars, uh, travel around the country like John Steinbeck or something and make people happy and make people laugh uh, to make a living that way. Um, you see, all of my successes, that is the successes that my peers recognize as successes. The things that 
would make you know who I was if you were to read the papers or whatever. All of my successes are somebody else's profound tragedies. But he is often the one who, through science, can bring closure to loved ones by answering questions that to anyone else might seem unanswerable. Dr. Gilking has devoted his career to science, which is why it's especially hard to stomach the distrust of it, whether it's misperceptions made worse by pop culture or a general willfulness to completely disregard experts. Public at, at large is scientifically illiterate, which means that when they look at television, they, they really have a hard time distinguishing between a docudrama a documentary, a commercial, uh, something like you're doing, which is direct reportage. Uh, people are no longer able to make those distinctions. They know they saw it on TV, uh, but they're unable to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, programs like those coming out of the late 70s, like Quincy, medical examiner figure, uh, programs like Bones, uh, which is about forensic anthropologists. The big problem I see, uh, aside from uh, these things, taking some artistic li license with scientific reality, is that that reflects itself in juries. I've had the uh, unfortunate experience a couple times of walking out of a courtroom um, when some very genuinely bad people walked out of court scot-free. And when they did the exit interviews with the jurors, they said things like, well, we were really expecting more sophistication from the forensic science testimony, you know, like on bones. Well, that isn't real. Um, in the case of CSI, uh, which was another a popular program and is a huge contributor to this kind of problem. We actually have in forensic science, you can talk to any forensic scientist, toxicologist, uh, a blood spatter expert, a pathologist, an anthropologist, and drop the phrase, the CSI effect. And they know exactly what you're talking about. It's part of the lingua franca of what we do now because it has had such a devastating effect on people's perception. DNA doesn't happen in 15 minutes. I don't do a complete analysis of a case, including tissue sampling, DNA, radiology, everything else that goes into it in 15 minutes. And the outcomes are not that definite. It's no surprise that someone who finds refuge in Hungarian Rhapsody number no. two a Doug West silkscreen, or a poem like Invictus, still maintains reserves of optimism. Dr. Gilking is hopeful for the future, a hope that is largely fueled by the young people in his lab doing incredible work. And he says, he's also hopeful for renewed respect and interest in science. We've been in a kind of an anti-science doldrum uh, in this country for about three decades, and it's been getting worse and worse. The anti-vac movements, uh, various kinds of crackpot science or junk science, 
those kinds of things. And I'm hoping that uh, this uh, sort of showdown that we are in now, where science is concerned, is going to re-impress us. And it's going to take us back to um, a, uh, a very strong uh, position with respect to funding the sciences and supporting the sciences. His introductory class is in human evolution. And at the beginning of every semester, he raises the question, why are you studying a science? After all, you may never be a person who investigates the truth of a 300-year-old murder case. But what happens if you're a person who can't evaluate the evidence that's sitting right in front of you? You're a music major. You're a, a philosophy major. Why, why should you have to take a science course? Well, the short answer is because if you don't learn something about science, for example, if you don't learn how to evaluate, just simply evaluate whether a claim is truly a scientific claim or not, then the other name for you is victim. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. You can find past episodes of our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to stay connected with us on Twitter, at UNT Social, and on Instagram, at UNT. Until next time, be safe. Sometimes the light's all-